Well, it is a joy to be here with you this morning. As Josh already alluded to, um, uh, the team that I have been part of for the past few weeks running camps returned safe and sound yesterday, and it really was a joyful trip for us. We had around 75 preteen and teen campers over three weeks of camp, and uh, around 20 people or so made the trip with me from Peterborough and Ottawa, and, uh, and I, I get the privilege of being able to spend a lot of time connecting with the leaders, helping guide them and strengthen them as they do a lot of the frontline relational ministry that we do in the camps. And, uh, and for me, it is a joy to see God working in those contexts. We've been doing video updates every week as part of the camp so that you can hear what it is that people have been experiencing up there. This week, obviously, we don't have the technology to be able to show that to you, but we did do a video update and we'll post it on the Auburn Facebook page if you want to be able to see it there. And alongside that, I do a newsletter to summarize some of the camp experiences. And so if you don't receive my newsletter and you want to, then let me know after the service and I'd be happy to give you that uh, or, or put you on that list so that you can receive as well uh, the update of what it is that we, we've done over the last few weeks. It's been really, really exciting and seeing God work there. I thought Josh raising the, the idea of spiritual poverty was uh, a really uh, thought-provoking thing as well. And before I dive into the sermon for this week, I, I just thought I'd, uh, I'd just highlight that a little bit as one of the central aspects of our experiencing uh, up north. Um, when it comes to this idea of spiritual poverty, I think, I think we have a vague idea in the back of our minds, what that looks like. And, you know, we use phrases, you know, like people are far from God or, you know, they're thirsty for God or things like that. And, and so we have this idea of spiritual poverty, but really uh, I think it is something that is, is a little bit foreign to us in this context, what real spiritual poverty looks like. Um, I, I would, I would define spiritual health as a sense that what I'm going through is part of something beyond me. That there is something, someone that's beyond me, beyond my circumstances, and it gives meaning and hope to what it is that I'm facing. Uh, and, and that's something that we get to hear often in our Christian teaching. Um, but it's really what's lacking for the campers that we're dealing with in this context, uh, and, and really for the communities in general. Even the version of Christianity that they receive tends to be more of a dry moralism. On the way back yesterday, we actually picked up a couple of hitchhikers. <laughs> Uh, on the road and brought them from uh, the, the, the bush into one of the towns along the way. And, and as we were talking with them, they kept on saying phrases, they found out we were Christians, and they kept on saying phrases like, well, oh, my, my sister became a Christian last year, and she's, she's cleaned up her act. She's no longer drinking alcohol and things like that. And we, we really should do the same thing because, you know, we know Jesus is coming back someday, and, 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 and you know, we need, to, we need to stop drinking alcohol before that happens so that we're okay as well, right? And that, that was kind of the, the version of Christianity that that was coming out, even in this, this brief 20-minute conversation we had with this couple, uh, and, and realizing that's not a very hopeful narrative that they have in their mind, right? That God is kind of frowning on their life and angry at them for what they're doing and that, that they'd better clean up their act or else they're just going to be punished for it, right? And, and, and that's, that's often what the kids carry with them into our camps is this sense that like, I'm not good enough. I can't be good enough. There's really nothing I can do. And I'm just, I just got to just suffer through it right? And so to be able to speak hope into their lives and to say, no, no, God loves you. He wants a better story for you. If you reach out to him, if you trust him, he, he, he can deliver on a, a better story for you. He can help you experience transformation in your life. Uh, and, and they're ripe for it. And we see over and over and over again how ripe they are for that message of hope. Uh, and, and I think the risk here with all of our spiritual poverty is that we can become hard to that. You know, I, I, it's always a bit of a shock to my system to come back here and to realize just driving down the street, there's a dozen 
options for churches that I could go to just on my return journey from the edge of town back in uh, that would be helping me make that connection to understand God's heart for me. And so suddenly it can become all about the peripherals. Right? Do I like the way they do worship or do I like this particular preacher's style or do I like the, the different ministry events that they run or things like that? Uh, and, and suddenly that becomes the thing that consumes my attention instead of recognizing how, how blessed we are to even have this message of hope that is central to our faith, repeatedly given to us. And, and so it's a joy to be able to return here and, and also just a good reminder for me, don't, don't become hard to that, Ben. <laughs> Right? May God, God protect me, protect us from, from, from becoming just hard to the hope that he has for us and focusing on other things that matter much, much less instead. And, and may he help us to empty ourselves of the wealth that we have to benefit others as the time is appropriate. Right? Uh, because, because we have so much and we should be giving it freely to others. So, so with that in mind, uh, we've been doing a summer series called Jesus Said What?, and, and those of you who have been tracking with us, we've been looking at a couple of Jesus' statements in the Gospels and, and, and the way that they are radical and they challenge our paradigms and, and, and they, can, they can really make us rethink the way that we're doing life. Um, and, and so we've covered a number of different topics over the course of July so far, looking at some of these statements that Jesus has made. And today we're going to be looking at John 15, verse 16, which I think is a really quite loaded short passage, that this single verse contains a great deal that challenges us and makes us uh, realize what Christianity really is all about. I'm going to read it really quickly here, uh, and then we can, we can begin diving into what it has to say to us. So John 15 verse 16 says, quite simply, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I'm going to repeat that. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, the context of the verse is that he, Jesus is speaking to his disciples before his crucifixion. He has enjoyed Passover with them, and he is giving them some private teachings that he's preparing them for the moment when he gets killed and, and then ultimately rises from the dead and is trying to set the stage for them to understand what it is that he's about to go through. We think that the apostles, after the fact, took some of these teachings and they shared them with the early church to help us understand what Jesus promised them and consequently what we too can expect as their spiritual descendants what it is that the Christian life is, is about, and what it is that his death and resurrection means and the implications of it for our lives. And I think John 15 as a whole is one of the most beautiful parts of this stretch of teaching that Jesus has towards his disciples. I think this verse in particular provides us with a really powerful overview of the Christian life. That we say that it actually gives us a sense of what the foundation of the Christian life is, what the purpose of the Christian life is, what the power of the Christian life is. And, and, and the whole verse is actually set within a portrait of what the Christian life is. And now I realize I have purpose, power, portrait, and then I have foundation at the beginning. So it's almost an alliteration. 
but not quite. That wasn't intentional. Uh, and I honestly couldn't think of a better word than foundation for what I wanted to say. So, you know, too bad. You don't get a real alliteration. But, <laughs> but that's, that's what we get from this verse, is the foundation of the Christian life, the purpose of the Christian life, the power of the Christian life, and a portrait of the Christian life. And I think that it should challenge us to really root ourselves in what it is that Jesus is teaching here and, and make sure we don't stray too far from it in the way that we live out our faith. So now, now, first of all, what, is, what, what do I mean when I say that it gives us a foundation? What is the foundation of the Christian life? And I think it's revealed in Jesus' statement in this verse, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Now, I think we need to be careful. It's easy to hear that. And for those who have a little bit of experience in the church and studying theology, it's easy to immediately go to some of the debates that exist around whether or not human beings have free will. And, you know, maybe it's just God who sovereignly picks us out and says, I'm going to save this person, and we don't really have much say in who gets saved and who doesn't. And I'm going to leave behind that whole debate. Because I really don't think that's, that's the primary thing that Jesus is touching on here. And so, so we can unpack that at a future date. If you want to sit down with me over coffee, I'd love to chat about this idea of, uh, of predestination and all of that sort of stuff. But I'm going to leave all of that debate aside and just note two things. First of all, what Jesus is talking about here is primarily not about whether or not we have choice in it. In fact, I think if you look at the the disciples' lives, you see that they certainly had chosen to follow Jesus, that they had repeated chances to walk away from Jesus, and they they didn't do that, right? Um, uh, He's not denying the fact that they are here because they want to be. Instead, what it's about is who initiates this relationship, right? And, And Jesus is trying to say to them that I pursued you, I called you. I I was the one who approached you and said, come, be my follower. I want you to have a special place in my world, in my ministry, um, before they even had a sense of who he was. That it was him who took the initiative. It was him who pursued. It was him who called. And so he's, he's highlighting that right here to say, look, it's me who actually initiated this relationship. You weren't the ones who come seeking me initially. I was the one who initially sought you out. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. And, and also what he's referring to is primarily about a community, not, not simply about individuals. Right? Certainly the individuals are caught up in this, but he's not sitting down and talking one-on-one with Peter and saying, Peter, I chose you. Instead, he's looking at the whole mass of his disciples and he's saying, I chose you to be my people, to be my followers. And this is actually a major theme throughout scripture, that God chooses people to be his people, to be a community set apart, to be something that isn't naturally existing in the world, a a people who know God and follow God and serve God in a special way. Now, in the Old Testament, we see this strongly with the nation of Israel, right? That, That God actually pursues the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he says, I have chosen you and your descendants to be my people. And then we see that he chooses them when they are in slavery in, in, in Egypt. And he actually calls them out of slavery and into a relationship with him in a promised land. And then we see this theme being repeated in the New Testament with the church. That, that Jesus says, I'm going to save you out of slavery to sin and slavery to, to Satan. And I'm going to call you to be my people who understand my love, who know me, and who walk in the freedom that comes with knowing my love for you. You see, what, what the theme of election 
which is what the, the, the technical term for all of this is, the electing love of God. The theme of election in Scripture is primarily about the fact that God chooses a group of hopeless, worthless slaves to be a special kind of people in the world, a people set apart, a people who have hope and freedom in a way that they didn't have before, and that's really unique within the world. And that's what Jesus is hinting at here when he says, I chose you. I chose you. That it's me who made you a distinct people. It's me who made you my followers. It's me who made you my disciples. That I have pursued you and made you a different kind of people than you were prior to my initiating love. This is the foundation of the Christian life. That, that all of us recognize that, that it wasn't us who chose to be this community. We haven't created this that this church, this history, this people group that we are a part of is something that is God's initiative. That it was him who came and called us out of slavery into light, into freedom. And, and that it's because of his initiating love that we exist at all as a people. So, so the foundation of the Christian life is this election, this choosing love of God, this, this love that says, I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to call you out of what you were into this new people and make you something that you weren't before. The Christian life is founded on God's initiating love for his people. So then alongside this foundation, we see laid out the purpose of the Christian life. Jesus says he called us, he chose us, so that we should go and bear fruit. Now, now, fruit is a metaphor that comes up a lot in Scripture, and especially in the New Testament. And there's a variety of ways that it's used throughout Scripture. Most theologians think that what's being talked about here with the fruit is actually the, the, the genetic use of the word, that, that it is actually talking about the idea of offspring, right? We recognize that the purpose of fruit is actually to replicate seeds and to multiply the plants, that, that, that Jesus is tying in this idea of God's people being part of a vine and that they should be part of this vine that bears fruit. In other words, it has seeds that are spread out and actually multiply the vine, multiply the plant, multiply the growth. And that's what goes on in this whole passage is this idea that we're kind of, we're kind of like vines that are breeding grapes that can then spread something. And I think that when you look at the context of this verse, you realize that what it is we're supposed to be spreading is, is knowing God's love. That quite simply, what we have as a community is that we know God's love and that what God is calling us to do is to bear fruit that actually makes sure that other people know God's love as well. That there would be more people who are becoming part of this community that knows God's love. Now, now I think this is important, especially in combination with what I just said about God choosing us. Because this leaves no room for the idea that we are chosen to make us an insular people. Sometimes through, through history, God's people have said, well, we're chosen and therefore we're special. And, 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 and God loves us and he doesn't really love those other people. And, and, and we can just celebrate that internally and we can reap all of the benefits of that for our own selves and, and forget about the people out there. And God condemns that all throughout Scripture. He says, no, 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 no. I chose you for the sake of the world. I want the world to know my love. I want the world to experience life with me. I want the world to actually benefit from returning to me out of slavery to sin. And that's why he has chosen us. That's the purpose. That's the aim of the Christian life is to bear fruit, to generate offspring, to multiply what it is that God is doing in this world. So the takeaway then is that the Christian life is founded on God's initiating love for his people and it's intended to help the world 
know God's love. That that's what the Christian life is all about, is to help the world know God's love. So then alongside this, we have a promise, a promise of power, that there's something special about the way that we get to do things that, that will empower that work that we are doing, that purpose that we are sent out on. You see, Jesus makes this bold statement that because he has chosen us, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now, I admit, as I read this statement, and it's repeated, it's stated earlier on in the passage as well, I admit there's a, there's a wrestling that goes on inside of me. I, I work with a number of different Christians from a number of different faith traditions. And, and this type of claim is something that really becomes central to some of the divisions within the church. And I have friends who are from a more Pentecostal or charismatic tradition who, who take this verse and others like it, and they kind of pull it out of context, and they make this claim that, you know, we just have to ask confidently and God will do whatever we want. And, and I see a lot of, honestly, legalism around that. That, that, you know, if you don't get what you ask God, it's probably because you're praying the wrong way or you're not a good enough Christian or you've sinned in some way. And so people who don't receive answers to prayer get this guilt heaped on them and suffer because of the fact that they feel like they're, they're somehow short in their faith, right? And I really don't, I don't think that's a good use of this verse. I realize that's not a very fruitful kind of Christianity. That's a Christianity that crushes people. And, and so I don't, I don't want to say, you know, hey, we should just, we should take this in isolation and say, you know, if you pray the right way, boom, everything will happen the way that you wish it will. I, I don't think that's true. And, and we especially need to be mindful of the fact that this is set within this context of this bearing fruit. That, that Jesus is talking about, you know, God answering our prayers as part of his function for us which is to spread his love throughout the world. And, and, and he also repeatedly says that you have to be abiding in my will. You have, to, you have to know my heart. You have to know my will for the world. And, and it's as you're walking with me, then you will see this happening in your life. And so there's some sort of parameters around this about exactly what we can expect from God. Um, and, and so we shouldn't, we shouldn't just go in thinking, oh, I, I, can just, I can just demand something from God or something like that. No, we have to go with humility, knowing it's because of his initiating love we can ask in the first place. And, and we need to be walking with him and, and knowing what his will is before we can actually expect this to be taking place. And it's always going to be with this purpose towards you know, his mission in this world. And so sometimes maybe we won't understand his mission as well as he does. And so he might do differently than we expect. So we have to have all those parameters around this, but let, let's be honest for me as somebody from a tradition like this one, more of a conservative tradition, a careful tradition, you know, the Bible chapels and Baptist type of traditions, right? I think our tendency is to move in the opposite direction that we tend to hedge our bets when we pray. Right? We, we, we tend to not like being really vulnerable by, by making the big ask. Right? And so a lot of the time as we pray, we kind of we retreat to a little bit of safety. You know, we throw in a lot of, well, if it's your will, God. Right? Like, God, if, if you want, then I would like you to heal this person. But, but God, I know you might not want to. And so it's okay if you don't really heal this person. So, so, so God, don't worry too much about it. Actually, God, you know, I, I know you're probably not going to do it. So, so, so God, you know, just forget I ever asked. Right? And I know, I know this is, I saw this modeled a lot growing up, but I know I prayed that way a lot of my life. Right? Or, or another thing that we tend to do is we tend to pray with, with these ideas in mind that have no real clear outcome. You know, God, give us joy in the middle of this. 
well, that's a good prayer, but it's kind of hard to test whether it's concretely happened, right? Or, or, or God, you know, you are good. Just help us to be satisfied in the midst of this. Again, a good prayer, right? But, but sometimes I think we retreat to the things that are a little bit more ethereal, right? A little less tangible because they're safer, right? I can always look back and say, oh, well, yeah, God gave me happiness in the midst of that, even though it was hard. You know, I, I could see moments when I had joy. Well, it's easy for me to kind of go back and, 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 and kind of cherry pick the moments when God answered my prayers. It's a lot harder if I say, God, heal this person, and then they, they die, right? That's harder. We're more vulnerable when we say, God, heal this person. Or if we say, God, help, I need money, <laughs> right? If the money doesn't come in, suddenly that's, that's a vulnerable thing. I feel like God maybe let me down, <laughs> right? And, and I feel like for me personally, and I think for a lot of our church tradition, a lot of the time we're so scared that we're going to be let down that we just don't really ask in the first place, right? That we hold back we, 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 the most important things to us. We don't really put before God. We only put before the things that are less consequential that are easier for us to think he, he didn't let us down, right? And, and we always hedge it with these, these, you know, okay, God, you know, it's okay if you don't really want to answer my prayer, just in case we happen to be wrong about the prayer request in the first place. So when I read this verse, I admit there's a real challenge to my heart, right? That, that Jesus is saying we, we, we need to be confident God wants to answer our prayers. And so we should be asking. And this is a theme that comes up a lot in Jesus' teaching, Right? Knock and knock and knock. And if you don't get an answer, keep knocking, right? He says that. And another part, he, he, he talks about the idea that we should, we should ask boldly like children. And, and, and so this is, this is convicting to me. You know, while we were up at the camps, Paul, my mentor who does the, the, the teaching in the evenings, he told a story that I think is a beautiful illustration of what it looks like to simply trust God with our prayers. And it really, really was probably my favorite memory from the whole week of camps. He, he was trying to encourage the teens to be vulnerable and to seek out God in prayer and to ask him for some things that, that they need in life. And he, he told a story about his son when he was five years old. And, and they had been preparing to go on a trip. And, and while they were preparing, somebody broke into the car and stole a couple of their bags. And in that bag was his five-year-old son's stuffed dinosaur. And this was not just any stuffed animal. This was the stuffed animal. Those of you who have kids know what I'm talking about, right? This is the one that he slept with. This was the one that went everywhere with him. This was the one that had a name and a unique name, and it was, it was going to, to, to be his best friend forever. Now, the unique name was Dino, so, you know, not too creative. <laughs> but but this, this, this animal was the special animal. And when his son found out that this had been stolen, he was wrecked. He was distraught. And, and, and they tried to search around, couldn't find where it had gone. And by the evening, they had given up hope. This is probably just not coming back. And his son wrapped his arms around him at bedtime and said, Daddy, can you just pray for Dino to come back? And he said, well, okay, but I want you to pray first. And so his son prayed, Daddy, God, protect Dino where he is. Look after him, keep him safe, and bring him home soon. And, and Paul said, you know, he just kind of echoed the prayer and he went downstairs and he fell on the floor in tears saying, God, you just heard his prayer. He's desperate here. Don't let him down. Somehow don't let him down, even though it seems so inconsequential. Well, the next day he received a phone call, got told to go to a restaurant. They had found a purse in the dumpster. 
And as he's telling the story, he reaches into his pocket and says, look what was here, and he pulls out this little stuffed dinosaur. And you could hear the room go silent as he shared this story, and all of the kids caught a glimpse of God answering prayers, even the prayer of a five-year-old. Something that seems so inconsequential, and yet was the cry of his heart, and God brought back that dino. Now, now that, I think, is the stance that we're invited to by passages like this. We recognize the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth has chosen us, and He wants us to cry out to Him for our own sake and for others' sakes especially. And He will answer. And so we, we like children, before our Father, just come and say, Daddy, please, would you answer my prayers? And we must make ourselves vulnerable. We must actually ask for the things that we are desperate for. And God is loving and wants to answer those prayers. Now, again, I recognize this leaves, this leaves some tension because sometimes our prayers are not answered the way we want them to. And, and by the grace of God, often, even on the other side of that, people will say, I now see some of the reasons why they weren't answered. There were other good things God wanted to do in that. So we hold out hope even when prayers are not answered the way we would like. But again, we should not let that hedge our bets. We must ask. And for me as a conservative, that's a challenge. The Christian life is founded on God's initiating love for his people, and it's intended to help the world know God's love, and God empowers that by responding to our prayers. We have to hold on to that in the midst of the work we do in this world. Now, this whole passage, as I said, is actually set within a bigger passage. The, the first half of John 15 really gives us a powerful portrait of the Christian life, and I think we would be amiss if we only looked at the, what I've talked about here and didn't look about uh, at all of the stuff that comes before this. Now, I don't want to go over the passage in detail because it is a complicated passage. It's a fairly long passage, and I, I don't want to use up that much more of our time. Um, but I do think it's important to note that John spends much more time on this the portrait of the Christian life, than he does on all of the things we've just discussed. And, and especially when you're dealing with ancient texts, the space that you give to something matters. Paper was expensive. Time was costly. You had to be out working most of the time. And so to spend a lot of time and a lot of expensive par uh, parchment writing out these things means that, that somebody thought it was more important than the stuff that they just sneak in. And, and John spends a big chunk of space trying to describe for us what it is that Jesus is calling us to actually be like as a Christian people. So I encourage you, go back and read all of the verses preceding this and reflect on them deeply because they are challenging verses and they are core verses to our faith. My summary of what he says as he looks at this theme of being a part of a vine and having to abide in that vine and bearing fruit is, is, is this. We endure in our relationship with God by following Jesus' command to love one another the way he loves us. I'll say that again. We actually endure in our relationship with God by following Jesus' commandment that we should love one another the way that he loves us. That's what I think the whole passage gets at, is that doing that, loving one another the way Jesus loves us, is actually how we come to know and stay in God's love for us. On the trip home from up north yesterday, 
we listened to C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. And in it, he talks about this idea of the divine love, God's love, and how we should have it for others. And, and he, he defines it really simply, and I think beautifully, when he says that love, the divine love, is love purely for the sake of the other, even when they're not naturally lovable. And he, he notes that we all need this, that all of us have at least moments when we really are not lovable whatsoever. And nothing natural wants to love that. And we all depend on the people in our lives loving us nonetheless, despite the fact that we're not lovable. And, and the amazing hope of the Christian faith is that this is actually God's very nature. That God is that kind of love that loves purely for our sake, not because of any benefit that he receives or because we are naturally lovable. And we see this in the fact that God creates in the first place. God was lacking nothing. He didn't have to create us or any of this. But he did it because he loves and he wants us to benefit. And, and especially we see this in the fact that he knew that our hearts would not always remain inclined towards him. And so from the beginning of creation, we're told that he knew that ultimately he would have to send his son for our forgiveness to die on the cross. And so he creates with a view of the cross. Now, this is the portrait of God's love for us, that, that he even knows it's going to cost me something to love these people. And yet he does it regardless. And this is what Jesus commands his followers. That's the kind of love I want you to have for others, for your neighbor, for your fellow Christians, for whomever God puts in your life. I want you to love them that way, just freely, that you would choose to love them, even when they're not lovable, for their own sake. And as we do that, that actually helps us understand better what God's love for us is like. And that's a, a core part of Jesus' teaching in this passage. And again, I want to stress everything else we've talked about in this verse, the foundation of the Christian life, the purpose of the Christian life, the power of the Christian life, it all has to be understood within the context of this greater passage that points us towards what the Christian life looks like. Is this sacrificial love for others freely given? That it's only when we're living that way that all of these other things really truly apply to the life that we're living. So then the takeaway, and the thing that I want to hand you as the, kind of my final argument, is that the Christian life is a life of freely given, sacrificial love that is founded on God's initiating love for his people and intended to help the world know God's love. And God empowers that by responding to our prayers. Let me say that again. The Christian life is a life of freely given, sacrificial love founded on God's initiating love for his people intended to help the world know God's love, and God empowers that life by responding to our prayers. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a really challenging, but also a really hopeful vision of what our faith is about. And I hope that we can carry that with us out of here and be reminded of it in all that we do beyond these walls or lack of walls, as it were. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to demonstrate your perfect, unfailing, freely given love for us. That you would choose us despite our sinfulness and rescue us out of slavery into this life where we know your love and we get to share it with others. And Father, I ask that you would help us to do that and that in all that we do, we would also have the confidence that you're not going to abandon us 
but that you are watching and listening and that when we cry out to you, you will be responsive. That, Father, we would go boldly out to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.